Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I'm a little under the weather this time, but I'm still working on the release of my 120th interview in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, I invite you to scroll through my catalog of awesome interviews on any podcast app or at the website, aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in Alcoholics Anonymous. So please sit back and enjoy this replay of my interview with Larry E. from March 2021. Hi, my name is Larry. I'm an alcoholic addict. Hi, Larry. I'm so glad you could be here today. I like to do that so people have the opportunity to uh, identify with being in the same room. And uh, how are you feeling, by the way? I've had some health challenges, but at my age, I didn't expect anything less. But I still get to the gym every day. And I'm feeling great. You're still getting to the gym all the time, huh? Every day. Never missed. Even during the pandemic. I'm looking forward to going back to the gym. There were It was a little dicey for a while there because they had to close and they had some issues with people not wearing masks. Just got back. Just got back now, actually. Well, you were looking pretty buff the last time I saw you, which isn't really isn't too bad for a man of 60. So, uh... <laughs> From your mouth to God's ears, I'm 60. <laughs> I've always enjoyed being in meetings with you and you and I go back a ways and kind of followed you throughout the years, and we've had the opportunity to not only see each other in meetings, but at other fundraising events and things like that. Now, what is your sobriety date, and how long have you been sober? My sobriety date is April 17th, 2007. Uh, My original sobriety date was February 22nd, 1995. Uh Uh-huh. And on April 16th, 2007, Uh my mother died. And I drank, I called up my sponsor. I told him I was going to, I'm not even a drinker. I mean, the last time I really had a drink was in March of 1983. Uh, And I called him, I was going to get drunk and I'd call him tomorrow with one day. And that's what I did. So you were pretty confident that you'd make it back after one day. Yeah, I wasn't really a drinker. In March of 83, I had a terrible car accident. That for all intents and purposes, I should have killed somebody in Phoenix, Arizona, and I didn't. And when I went to jail, I got down on my knees and was just begged God to remove the obsession, and, and he did. And other than a, a very teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny, hardly worth mentioning 12-year cocaine slip, mm-hmm. I stayed I stayed pretty <laughs> sober. And But cocaine drove me to Betty Ford in 95. Yeah, I get it. So I've had other guests on the show who also uh, used cocaine uh, and drank uh, or used cocaine at times they weren't drinking or were drinking at times they weren't using cocaine and all sorts of variations in between. So 83. So let's say it's been 38 years since you've drank. Except for that one day. Except for that one day. How did you come to alcoholism from the time you were a kid? Were you exposed to alcohol early on? Not really. As I look back and I've been, you know, in therapy many years throughout the years. Yeah. I was subjected to alcoholic uh, behavior and thinking mm. uh, for, for a long time. My We belonged to a country club for 20 years growing up that was probably at least five times my father's yearly income to join. Mm. 
and he, he was a truck driver for Ballantine Brewery in New York. And he had so much seniority that he would pick up the truck at six o'clock in the morning, drive it 15 minutes to the docks, and they would entirely offload the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. So he was finished. So he worked for 15 minutes a day and he was a teamster. So he was always around. So he took up a hobby of playing golf and he became really, 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 really good. And he became a golf hustler. Uh -huh. And he, we belonged to this country club. And when I, why I say alcoholic thinking, he, you know, the, the club cost so much money that we, he could, we couldn't tell anybody that he was a truck driver. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. So, you know, we had strict rules, my sister and I. Uh -huh. So I used to say my father owned Valentine's. <laughs> so from an early age, I was throwing out stuff that made no sense to anybody and being encouraged to do so. So in, in some way, the fantasies yeah. started there. But I absolutely did learn some of my greatest life lessons caddying for my father during those years. Was there was there alcohol in that environment at the country club? Absolutely. At the club, but not for my parents. Neither one of my parents were alcoholics. Neither one. So neither one of your parents. Was there any uh, alcoholism in your grandparents or extended family that you know of? My mother's parents, absolutely not. Right. My father's parents, his father was. His mother and father both died when I was... I wasn't even 10 years old yet. So I have very little knowledge of them other than the stories that, you know, that they told. What kind of stories? Well, that, you know, that he was, a, he never worked a day. The, my grandmother um, was the worker and he, he, he was an alcoholic uh -huh. and pretty much um, was a dandy. They called him a dandy. They're like that. His nails <laughs> polished and his mustache waxed and out perfectly. Yeah. And he was a drinker. Huh. Uh huh. So if it was something genetic, it skipped a generation. Yeah. So when was your first experience? I lived in New Jersey and the drinking age in New York was 18. So we lived on the other side of the Gothels Bridge. And the Gothels Bridge was from Elizabeth, New Jersey, 10 minute ride to Staten Island over the bridge. Uh huh. Sure. And Staten Island was 18. So all the kids would go to Staten Island on the weekend and get drunk. And it wasn't anything that I thought, well, geez, I really got a problem because I never thought about it other than when we used to go on weekends and they say, geez, I got to go back or I got to keep drinking. None of that was prevalent for me. So you didn't have any, uh, any real negative consequences during that time that you were going across the river? No, other than fights, but we, but I, that would happen if I was sober because that's just who I was. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> okay. How about drugs in those days? I was an athlete. Uh-huh. And I threatened to turn my college roommates in for smoking pot. That's who I was. <laughs> oh, gee. What sport did you play? I was captain of the wrestling team in college. And in high school, I got the best athlete in the school award. I was captain of three teams. Wow. I led the school in goals in soccer. I was an undefeated wrestler, uh -huh. and I was the only guy who started on a baseball team from freshman year on. Wow, that's terrific. So you were a jock in all sense of the word, right? Yeah. I got what they call the Cornell Cup, which was the Scholar Athlete Award my senior year. Wow. Did you do that collegiately? Wrestling. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I was captain of the team at Rutgers. So you, you wrestled in college, and yeah. what kind of lifestyle did you have in college? Were you still the same straight-laced jock that you were in high school? As far as drugs, absolutely. Yeah. How about alcohol? No. we had a, Our fraternity was a wet, one of the wet ones, so we were on tap 24-7. Mm -hmm. And we'd drink on weekends. We'd have, we were a party house. 
So we would drink on weekends and I'd get fairly wasted on a consistent basis. But I don't recall the, the cravings where I had to keep drinking or I, you know, everybody else was gone and I was still there drinking. Yeah. I, I don't really relate to those stories. Uh-huh. Do you think that might be because you knew that you were going to be drinking? So you might not crave what you know you're going to get next or that, or that next weekend or that sort of thing. Do you think that that had anything to do with it? You know, uh, Howard, I'm not really sure uh-huh. because, you know, I've never questioned whether I was an alcoholic because I was a flat-out alcoholic. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a lot of big book studies. We're doing Joe and Charlie tapes. And as we're reading the stories, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling them that I'm having... You know, it's it's hard for me to say that, geez, I remember that I, you know, I woke up sick as a dog and I, you know, I don't remember those things. Yeah. When did you first acknowledge that you had a problem with, with uh, drinking? Oh, early on, because as my sister would say to me in California, she used to say, Larry, you do not have a drinking problem. You have a driving problem. <laughs> I, I, I belong to some serious private clubs and I got more, I got more DUIs leaving leaving these clubs probably got four or five maybe six of them but it was before it was before they kept track and they added them up and it was before states shared information uh-huh so and it was before mad so all i did was pay the fine and move on what was your thinking after each dui why did i drive <laughs> <laughs> So you didn't draw the connection between the booze and the driving. Oh. No, not until Foley. Not until Foley used to say to me, Larry, you're ignoring the billboard, man. The billboard's telling you you're an alcoholic and you can't drink. So don't ignore the billboards of life. Wow. So you found a, ha- a handy end run around the uh, around the alcoholism at that point, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. I-, I got a limousine and-, and got a driver to live with me. I thought that was the solution. How did it work, though? <laughs> It didn't work. But I, you know, when I say that I was, that I did a lot of drinking, I wasn't a weekday drinker that I can ever remember. I was a worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to show up for work, do work, um, and be responsible mm-hmm. to myself and to other people that I was never alone, you know? Right. I was amongst a ton of people. And most of the time I was running training seminars. So, you know, slurring your words wasn't too cool. That's right. That's right. You got to be on your game. Right. That experience in college, being in a fraternity that drank on the weekends, that same kind of uh, lifestyle of uh, working during the week and drinking on the weekends, did that follow you out of college into your work life? Yes. Yeah. Do you feel like you might have been a binge drinker? I think I was more than a binge drinker. Yeah. But I just thought that I had, you know, I was a tremendous freebase user more than anybody that I've ever met or spoken to. Mm-hmm. And yet I had offices all over the United States and I would, tra- I would travel 43 weeks at least out of the year. I was more afraid of going to jail than I had a desire to do drugs. Huh. So when I was out of town, I didn't buy cocaine because I didn't know who I might be buying it from. I was afraid to go to a head shop to get the materials that I needed to do freebase. So I just didn't do it. Hmm. And I waited till I was at home back in California to do my freebase. So being on the road 43 weeks meant you had nine, let's say nine or 10 weeks back uh, where you could get what you needed, right? Right. And, and there was a few states, like I was from New Jersey, so I knew everybody in Jersey and New York. Right. When I was there, I could buy drugs. 
because I felt comfortable. I knew the people and I knew I wasn't going to get arrested and unless I would normally just as if I would get arrested in California if they found me. But, you know, I wasn't worried about who I was getting it from or, or the or the stuff that I was going to use. But other than that, I was I was disciplined. I had a hefty fear of jail. I snorted cocaine, but I never freebased. I never did any of that sort of thing. Is that not pretty addictive uh, stuff? Well, I don't know how addictive it is. Once you start, you can't stop. Uh-huh. But it's once there's no more, you know, you don't wake up the next day craving it. Uh, so you could leave it behind and not and not go into withdrawals or any of that kind of stuff. Right. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. But but I didn't do crack. I did freebase. I mean, I was a full blown man about town. There's a big <laughs> difference between crack and freebase. What is that difference? Um, freebase is made with ether and crack cocaine is made with baking soda and it comes into a rock. Freebase you put into a petri dish and you and it dries out, the alcohol dries out and evaporates, and little crystals come up, look like little Christmas trees, and that's the cocaine. And it's ten times more potent than than crack than crack. It's one hundred percent pure cocaine. So while you were traveling and you weren't doing and you weren't freebasing, did al- was alcohol being used to kind of take the place? Yeah, I would, I would go to the, you know, we were staying at either Marriott's or Ritz Carlton, so it was nice places. And um, I would go to the bar on the weekends or go to a club on the weekends, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, you know, again, during the week I had to be razor sharp. And I, you know, I didn't leave the hotel very often, so I could pro- I could drink to oblivion and uh, and then just go up to my room and go to sleep. So this was going on during during what decade? Are we talking about the seventies and early eighties or seventies? Um, I was I was in California, but I wasn't traveling. So I was just a, I was a salesman working my way up. So the seventies, I traveled uh, with my ex brother in law, and we would go out of town uh, on Monday, on Sunday night, and come back when we finished our work. That would be anywhere from Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes even Friday, mm-hmm. and we'd stay at a hotel and we would. Get we party at night and six o'clock in the morning, we're out on the phone working without fail every day. So you were able, you were a functional alcoholic then, weren't you? Absolutely. Did you ever think about stopping? No, I never did. I mean, I, I, I can tell you a situation that was as sad as it gets. I was at the top of my game financially and where I didn't have to ever do anything ever again with, with as far as hiring and training people it was all done. My job, my job was to travel to our, at my own choice to any, to any one of our 43 out of state offices and out of the country offices, fly in, give a sales meeting with all the people involved in the office, take the manager and his wife out to dinner. And that's all I had to do. Okay. And I had four national directors Mm -hmm. and we would have conference calls and we were on a conference call and I was on the speakerphone and I'm in my bathroom smoking free base on the conference call and and putting the phone on mute and, and we say goodbye and I go to hang up the phone and I miss hanging it up, but they think I've hung up and I'm listening to them saying, God, I think Larry's on drugs, man. I think he's on drugs, you know, and, but, but 
you know, I don't know what we should do. I mean, he's, he's, he's the biggest guy in the company and, and the owner, you know, the CEO is his best buddy. And if we tell him, maybe we'll get in trouble. I'm listening to the sailors. And I said, and I didn't quit then. Hmm. I didn't quit then. What did you chalk that up to? Well, I, I, let me tell you what I did do. I had a, I know this is going to sound ludicrous, but I built, I built a $20,000 free base room in my house. You're kidding. No. What is a free base room? I built a thousand square foot addition onto my house. Uh huh. And it, it had a long hallway to get there. Uh-huh. And I had two, two, some, two big doors to get through. <laughs> and I had um, cameras on the wall where I could switch off and look at any different place in the house. And I had a big bathroom with a steam room and a sauna. And, and everything. And I was on that phone in the bathroom and we, I had a, a, a very expensive mirror on the wall. And I looked in the mirror while these guys were talking and I cracked it. I just took, I took something and just smashed it right into the mirror. I couldn't stand looking at myself. Uh, I, it made myself sick. I was a false prophet and I couldn't stand it, but I didn't stop. But it was only a month later that I went to Betty Ford. That was a, a wake-up call, but not necessarily a turning point. Basically, not a wake-up call. It was like, who the F are you, Larry? Uh. Who, do, who are you, man? You're, you're a scumbag. But, but I didn't stop. But what happened was I went to a board meeting in Los Angeles with just the, just the division heads of the company. I was one of the division heads. I'm smoking free base before the meeting, you know, the night before. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, if I go to bed at three o'clock, I can get three hours sleep. If I go to bed at four. So finally it got to the point where I didn't go to bed at all. Okay. And I drove up to the meeting and I fell asleep and fell off my chair and fell into the lap of the CEO. Oh, no. And he said, let's go get drug tested. And I said, we don't have to do that. I'm wasted. He said, well, I need it. I have to because I need it for my records. And um, I went, got drug tested. I called Betty Ford as soon as I got home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I want to make an appointment. I want to be in. They said, well, we'll call you when we have an opening. I said, well, you're not, you don't have to call me. All you're going to have to do is look in your lobby because I'm leaving now. Uh-huh. I'm going to sit there until you accept me. And that's what I did. Now, is this after 83 when you stopped drinking or was this prior to that? This was 95. 95 that happened. Okay, so... Yeah. 83 is when I started doing free base. I okay. wasn't drinking at all. Okay. So you, you didn't drink at all between 83 and 95? Not at all. Not even a drop. Not even those times when uh, you couldn't get free base? You, you weren't drinking, huh? My father used to hit me when I said never and always. So I very rarely used the word never. <laughs> I never drank. <laughs> you never drank after 83. Right. So is it safe to say you did free base alcoholically? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I, I, I've known a lot of people who've done drugs. I yeah. don't know anybody who has done more than I did. Yeah. I bought a head shop. Did you ever know that? No, I didn't. That's news to me. I used to break my pipe every night and say, I'm never doing this again. Uh huh. And then send my driver the next day. So I bought a head shop just for my own use. I didn't, it was never opened. It was a beautiful, it was on Ventura <laughs> Boulevard. In, in Sherman Oaks, it was a beautiful place called Heads and Highs. It was a gigantic store. It was never open. 
I used to go to meetings in California and apologize to all the drug addicts and alcoholics <laughs> who wanted to go to that store and wondered why I was never open. So, I never opened it. I just used it for my own for my own personal use. So this room you had in the house uh, with the with the doors and the cameras and everything, was that out of the paranoia that came out of being afraid of getting caught? I wanted to isolate myself from the rest of the family so that you know, nobody knew, but everybody knew. Everybody knew. Did they ever approach you with it? My, not my ex-wife, but my son. How did that work out? Um, he, he, he just used to say, you make me sick. Huh. You make me sick to my stomach. How old was he when he said that? He was born in 74, and this had to be 92, 93. Wow. So he was about 20 years old when he said that to you. Yeah. Did that give you a pause, or did you just blow it off? Hey, nothing came between me and my pipe when I was home. But I took him on the road with me at times, and he saw the respect. He saw me d doing my thing. I mean, he saw me hiring and training. I hired and trained over 25,000 salespeople worldwide. Wow. And what kind of message do you think that that sent to him about using drugs and performing or, or being a functional alcoholic? We haven't had any deep conversations about that. My son became a pill fanatic, mm -hmm. and I go to a meeting called The Gathering of Men. That's where I got sober in 95, and he started going to The Gathering also. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, we had family week at Betty Ford. We went through years of therapy. We had ups and downs. I got custody of my son in 1976 in California when he was, you know, three or four years old, which mm -hmm. was unheard, unheard of for a man to get custody. So he saw everything. I mean, we were close, you know took him everywhere. And over the last three and a half years, we have not said one word to each other. He decided he didn't want to talk to me anymore. And it's been the biggest bane of my existence. Hmm. I've had zero contact. He's a computer genius guru. So he, he's, he's blocked me on any, I mean, there's no way I can get in touch with him. And, you know, every, every day I wake up in my morning prayers and meditations. And, you know, I, I say, I feel like Rodney Dangerfield, I say good morning heaviness, and I have that same heaviness every morning. And I pray that today's the day. And uh, last week, I got an email from him, the first time in three and a half years. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it cracked the door open a little bit. We'll see what happens. I, you know, I'm not going to barge through it, but he basically took my inventory in the email, and he listed it as pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what I hate, and this is what I love. And, you know, we're both Yankee fans. And he said, I was I was watching a documentary on Mickey Mantle and I really wanted to call you. And and I didn't. But I, here's the here's the email. And, you know, so that I answered the email and we'll see what happens. Wow, that's really sad. It sounds sad. And I can see it. You can't even admit. I mean, it's the saddest thing in my life. Yeah, there's nothing sadder. That's tough. Yeah. So he went into AA at some point. He went into uh, the gathering right. of men. Yes. And um, he was there for maybe four years. Mm -hmm. uh, he went into, um, I wasn't out there long enough. I mean, I, uh, consistently enough to know what was going on, but he was drifting away from AA and doing more into Buddhism and, and that kinds of studies. And there's not a better father on the planet and or husband. And he works you know, real hard. Mm -hmm. His wife would not tolerate drugs and alcohol or pills. So I'm understanding that there's no way he could be wasted in doing what he's doing. So everybody that I know has tried to reach out to him. 
my mm. sponsor, the people that I used to know that love them at the gathering, and he has zero response for anybody. Yeah. The only person who could put it back together is my sister, and she died just before he stopped talking to me. Huh. Do you have a sense for what was the tripwire on that? Yeah, I do, but it makes no sense, so it's silly to explain oh, it. I okay. mean, he, he delineated it for me, and it has zero, it makes zero sense. But Jason made a decision in an illogical way. He said that um, he was having problems in his marriage, that he explained to his wife that the reason he was was because the only role model he had as a father, as a husband, was me. So that if he cut off all communications with me, things would get better. He called me up and he told me that exact words, just what I'm telling you. And I said to him, Jason, if saving your marriage or whatever means me falling on my sword, I'll gladly do it. And so that's the way it happened. And I thought it would be three or four months maximum. It's been over three years. So that's the story behind it. How did you get through all this with him? I mean, this has been a tough time for you. How did your program help you through this time? I pray about it every day. And it's my first prayer. It's my first prayer in the morning. Jason, I hope, you know, I hope that we connect and I can connect with my son and my grandkids because that's the most important thing in my life right now. And let everybody, let the light shine in on everybody. Mm -hmm. And I pray for this for another day. And then I go about my normal prayers and that's it. But it's a daily, daily, daily thing. It's something that I speak with my sponsee, you know, every now and then about it. Mm -hmm. I speak to Paulie about it, you know, once a month, maybe. Yeah, and Paulie's your sponsor, right? Right. I bring it up in the gathering of men, at least being that so many people there know him. Mm. Uh, I bring it up. Quite often, you've got some folks in your life that are they're helping you through it. Yeah, and I have a few, I've actually had one guy reach out that actually spoke to Jason. That's the first time that he ever answered the phone and spoke to anybody, um, and that was previous to him emailing me. You know, I don't know if that's had anything to do with it, but it happened. Have you ever thought about what you might have done had you not the people to turn to, like your sponsee and your sponsor and the men there out in California? You know. Alcohol and drugs don't even enter into my mind anymore. Now, I'm not saying that I'm that I'm insulated or cured. It's not something that, boy, a good hit of freebase would solve this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, or go get drunk. No, I, I do more service work. Uh -huh. You know, I try to stay into the solution and out of the problem. But here's what I say to everybody. This is me. I am Rodney Dangerous. And what I mean by that is I wake up every single morning and say, Good morning, heaviness. Okay. Because that's the heaviness and it's there every day. Yeah. It's there every day. Nobody knows what it's like to have to fight for custody in, in California in 76 and get it. When you were working during that time and you had custody, did you have somebody helping, helping you there? Nope. I took them with me 24 seven. You're kidding. Really? Nope. When I had appointments, he would come in with me on appointments at three or four years old. And I, I used to say, how could people turn me down? You know, I, I apologize for having my son with me, but I, you know, I'm trying to make ends meet. And here he is. Wow. <laughs> that creates a really tight bond, doesn't it? At a very early, early age. Absolutely. I mean, when I would drive to anywhere from two and a half to three hours outside of Los Angeles to go to work on a weekly basis. Uh -huh. So the first thing you do is you go out of town, you get a hotel room. 
that has yeah. free direct dial phones. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you get a list of people and you start calling them, trying to sell them advertising into the local supermarket in their backyard. That's what I did. Uh -huh. And Jason would be in a room with me the whole time. And then when I had an appointment, he'd hop in a car, we'd go to an appointment. Little kid holding my hand, <laughs> be walking in. <laughs> how could they turn you down, right? I, that's what I said. How could they? I didn't know if I was good or just getting the sympathy sale. Oh, well, you know, a little bit of each uh, probably didn't hurt, did Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Now, now, once you got to be school age, were you home more often or were you still on the road as much? There was a time when I started to do free base. Yeah. And I was married to his mom right. at the time. And we were going through a divorce. Right. Uh -huh. And um, I had the house and she left. And he was living with me. And I said, I can't let him see me like this. Uh -huh. So I sent him to Florida, second grade, to live with my parents. Mm. It was He loved it. They loved it. It was great for everybody. And I got myself, my act back together. Uh -huh. And um, I met this woman. Mm -hmm. And we became really, really close. And she had a son that was six months apart from Jason. Mm -hmm. And we got a, a, a beautiful place. And I mm -hmm. flew down to Florida to bring him back. Mm. And um, I said, I told him that, you know, he was going to have a, a stepbrother and, and we're going back to live with Casey. That was my second wife. We were married mm -hmm. for 14 years. And yeah. he started to cry uncontrollably. Mm. And he said, all I ever wanted it to be was you and me, dad, just you and me, dad, just you and me. And mm. I've seen my father cry twice in my life. And that was, a, yeah. and um, I often felt very very guilty about doing that huh. yeah and, and my sister the voice of reason psychiatrist mm -hmm. said larry he got one of the most structured loving families to live with whereas who knows what would have transpired with just you raising him along yeah and he became wow. eventually he and byron that was his stepbrother became best friends that's amazing how long had he lived with your parents in florida not even the school year. Okay, so he was still just a little kid when you you went and got him and brought him back to yeah. to L.A. Yeah, huh. yeah, huh. and he, I mean, he loved it. He wanted to go back all the time, not to live with him, but he uh -huh. wanted to go back. My father used to take him to the game room every day. He was a game fanatic. He was a killer. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. you give him a quarter and he could use that for the whole day. That's how good he was. <laughs> Wow. So the two of you blended the families. Yes. Raised two boys. They were similar in age. So I'm I'm trying to get my arms around the time frames here. Was, was this before 95? Yes, this was before. I got divorced in 95 for my second wife. So Jason was in third grade. So however, so 74. So um, it must have been like 82, 83, 84, 85 that we we were living mm -hmm. and then you know then i started i mean making money off the charts right we bought this gigantic house uh -huh. on the hill yeah jason and byron and casey and i lived there mm -hmm. and that was in the late 80s early mm -hmm. 90s mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then and then my free base was out of control but only when i was home yeah in 92 93 94 until mm -hmm. i went to betty ford in 95. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So treatment in 95 was the major turning point until you did the one day in 2007? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it changed yeah. my life, too, because my sponsor was a, was a guest speaker there. Betty Ford is like a cocoon, you know, yeah. and it's it's enclosed in oleanders. Yeah. And there's there's uh, 80 people there, 40 men and 40 women. You're not supposed to socialize or communicate with anybody out of your group of 20. Mm-hmm. So you don't even speak to the other 20 men. Yeah. And if you go on the other side of the oleanders, you're booted. And there was the Annenberg Auditorium there. Uh-huh. And it's uh, sat at, you know, maybe a thousand people or whatever. They decided to have guest speakers like, kind of like, you know, the top uh-huh. speakers from all over the country. Yeah. And they uh-huh. would invite the entire desert community to come listen. Okay. So they walked us out of the Oleanders and took us to the, the first week I was there. They oh, took wow. us to the auditorium. And uh-huh. the first speaker was Mickey Mantle. My oh, childhood God. idol, man. I went crazy. It was Mickey Mantle. <laughs> and um, the second week was my sponsor. Yeah. And I said, wow, if I could only get him to be my sponsor. But they marched us right back. Uh huh. So you didn't get a chance to meet him that night, did you? Well, yeah, I did. They, they, they toured, he toured the campus. Oh, okay. So he walked in and I said, I, I know you don't know me, but I've seen you at my, my plant. The, the CEO of our company was a, he, he loved hanging with stars and right, Paul right. used to come to the office occasionally. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I said, I saw you at my, at the office lot. I'd love you to be my sponsor when I get out of here. So I could only judge people by myself. I mean, that's all we can ever do. Right. Yeah. So he gave me his card and he said, call me when you get out. Uh-huh. So I said to myself, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. It's like the girl at the bar says, give me your number. I'll call you. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm still waiting from 78. You know, <laughs> she hasn't called yet. Not yet. Yeah. So I used to think that people, everybody was, I used to call them cruise ship friends. Right. You know, you meet right. on a cruise and you're going to stay to get touch and you never speak to each other. So I figured I would never speak to him again. Uh-huh. And I got out of Betty Ford and I called him and he said, I'll meet you. And it turns out we lived within a mile of each other. Huh. How long were you in the treatment center there? 30 days. 30 days. Was that sufficient? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. all I had to do was end the free base, you know, and that was it. Do you think you could have done it without formalized treatment? No. I don't think I could have. Why? I needed to have a wake-up call and listen to people, really listen to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not talking about to the teachers and the, and the people that were instructing us and the doctors. I'm talking about yeah. the guy, mm-hmm. the other 19 guys tell their stories. Yeah. You know, oh my God, man. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and me share my, my story and say that we're going to stay in touch and we're going to, you know, we're going to get better together. And I don't know that how many made it, but I mean, I consider myself, even though I drank that one day, I consider myself a success coming out of Betty Ford, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. So you got together with your sponsor. What was the first thing he did with you? Oh, this is an incredible story. <laughs> so there's a very famous deli called Arts Deli. Mm-hmm. And he says, meet me at Arts. And I have to say this because Art would get mad at me if I didn't. There's a big sign in this deli. It said, every sandwich is a work of art. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's okay. great. Yeah. So yeah. I meet him there uh-huh. and he says, get in my car. And I get into his car and he takes me to the Los Angeles County Library. Hmm. And we go inside and he says, uh, go get me the book how Larry did it. <laughs> I said, what? He said, go get me the book how Larry did it. I said, there's no book how Larry did it. He said, this is the biggest library in the state of California. How do you know? So I gave a cursory walkthrough and I come back and I said, there's no book how Larry did it. And he holds up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, this is how millions of people have done it. Uh, Are you willing to do it exactly like this? And I said, yes. He said, get in my car. Mm -hmm. So I get in this car and he drives me to Beverly Glen and Sunset. And at that time, on the corner of Beverly Glen and Sunset, there was this big, green, ugly office building. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you see here? I said, I see this gigantically ugly green office building, mm-hmm. just what everybody else sees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, let me ask you a question. Do you think when the builder finished this, he said to his family, hop in the car. I want to take you to see this most disgusting building I just finished. Or do you think he said, I want to show you this beautiful office building that I just completed? Mm-hmm. I said, probably the latter. Mm-hmm. He said, so then you, you would agree there's other ways of thinking about things in the way that you do? Mm-hmm. I said, yes. He said, call me every day before 9 p.m. and I'll be your sponsor. Hmm. That was it. So you did? Yep. You didn't miss a day? Nope. How long did you do that? First five years. We went to St. He went to the Gathering of Men every day for five years. After five years, he said to me, um, now that you've got some time, he said, I have this psychiatrist who when I'm in the dark, she hands me light bulbs. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to go see her and... Uh, Maybe you can find out how this all began and where it all started. Mm -hmm. So I had time and money. So I went three days a week Mm -hmm. to see her for an hour, three hours a week. Serious therapy. And you go into AA every morning? Yeah. I went to two meetings. every. I went to the gathering of men and then I went to a nine o'clock meeting. Mm -hmm. So you're doing all this AA and, and psychotherapy. Yeah. I still speak to Amy occasionally. She... She said to me after six months, she said, Larry, I got some bad news and I got some good news. I said, okay, Amy. She said, the bad news is that every single one of your initial reactions is wrong. I said, okay. I said, what's the good news? She said, the good news is that every single one is wrong, so you don't have to pick and choose. (laughs) Wow, she laid out your character defects on a platter, didn't she? Now, let me explain something to you. To that, to this day, Howard, I don't. Re- I try my best to not react on my initial reactions because I believe her. Yeah, like first thought wrong. Yeah, right. I mean, this is a woman who saw me. It wasn't like she was making a guess that you go every now and then to therapy. <laughs> you know, and, and when you're going to a therapist and you really want to find answers and you really want to get better mm-hmm. and you're being open and honest, it's like why have a sponsor if you're not going to be honest with them. Why go to therapy if you're not willing to cut to the chase, you know, because therapy was all questions. It wasn't statements. She made questions and I gave, I answered her questions, you know, 
What did you say when this happened? Why do you think that? What, what was going through your mind? Those kind of stuff, you know? Did you ever feel like what you were hearing in therapy was contradictory or, or wasn't in line with the way you were working your program? She was a, a therapist for for only AA people. Really? Okay. Well, okay. That's good. The reason I asked is because every now and then I'll run into somebody who says, well, I didn't go to meetings that day or that week because I, I saw my therapist and I feel like that took care of it. And I always say therapy and AA are not the same thing. No, they're not. But she dealt with so many alcoholics that, I mean, that was her whole practice. Yeah. I, I meet half the guys from the gathering room in the waiting room when I left. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? So so between her and the Gathering of Men and your sponsor, uh, were you sponsoring other guys at this time during the first five years? No. I had three sponsees that never made it past the four step. Mm -hmm. And then when I started traveling, when I, I didn't work for the first five years. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working again, it was, it was difficult. Mm. So let me ask you with regard to the service part of our program during those five years, what did your sponsor have you doing? Oh, oh we did, I did panels up the yin yang. Yeah. We did skid row once a month. We did the veterans hall once a month. I, I was secretary of two meetings. Mm -hmm. I always had a, a ability to, to socialize, you know, so I had a lot of friends and, and it was really, and it was enjoyable, but I, I, I lived an AA life and the fact that all my friends, I didn't have any friends outside of the program. One of the funny stories that I used to like to tell is that, you know, I li lived in a, you know, the big house up on the hill and we used to, my ex-wife and I used to have, you know, fairly large parties, you know, catered parties, you know, uh -huh. if there was like 80 people invited, we would we'd cater for like 40 people because that was, you know, we would like show up, we'd have mm -hmm. separate tables and outside tables and everything set up. And then I went to AA and we invited 80 people and 80 people showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had that experience before <laughs> in my life. We ran out of everything. I said, you guys are crazy, man. I forgot what I was dealing with. When you say yes, you're going to be there. Not a bottle in sight either, huh? <laughs> that is great. That that's yeah. a good feeling, isn't it? When you realize how how many AA friends you really have. I think right. there are certain times that you know that, and one of them is that kind of situation—a party. The other time is at time of tragedy or personal loss. And I know that you were very, very close to your sister and 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 to your mother, but your mother preceded your sister. Can you speak a little bit about it? Because you said you were going to go out after your mother passed away, and, and you did. Well, what happened was I wasn't living in Texas, but I was in Texas. I couldn't get a flight out. Mm -hmm. She died in California. And I couldn't charter a plane. I couldn't do anything. I was stuck. And it just felt frustrating. I said, I'm going to just get drunk. And that's the way I resigned myself to the fact. That's exactly the way it was. It wasn't like I was missing my mom so much and what am I going to do? And she's my whole life. But, she, you know, in, in that aspect, she was. But it, it wasn't anything like that. It was just, it was resignation. And I, I actually went to a Arco station and bought wine in a, and it wasn't even in a bottle. Like, and I forget what the hell it came in, like a plastic thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the rotka that I drank. And, and passed out at the table and took a flight out the next morning. My sister is my whole life, and it's hard for me to talk about my sister without crying. And yesterday, March 2nd, was my father's birthday. And my father and I be became best of friends after a very rough childhood from on my end. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Now, when your mom passed, it almost sounds like the only thing that you might have been able to control at that time from where you were and where she was, was being able to go and pick up a, a drink. Right. You know, I didn't have uh, an AA group here, mm. you know. So so being able to have the people around you that you needed, right? everybody's by phone at that time when you needed them surrounding you. In, a- in essence... I, I became fairly close with Loy. Yeah, Loy. And after that one day, and I started counting, when I went out, Paulie said to me, you're going to have to come back to California for the first 30 days. And the, the reason for that is, unlike meetings in Texas, in California, mm-hmm. every single meeting, they say this, will anybody with 30 days or less, please stand and identify yourself? Not to embarrass you, Mm -hmm. but just so we get to know you. So Paul said, Larry, I want you standing up every day for those 30 days. Hmm. So I want you out here for those 30 days. So that's what I did. You know, but that's that's the water under the bridge. You know, time is time. 2007 until your sister's been gone how long now? My sister died three years ago. She was my personal Google and my GPS. And there was nobody in the world that I was closer with. I mean, we, when she was getting her degree and getting the ability to practice, she had a five hour session, her and her, and her doctor on one side, my parents flew in from Florida, my parents and me on the other side facing each other. And I'm listening to my sister talk about our childhood. And I'm saying, I didn't grow up like that. That wasn't my childhood. That's not, that's impossible. That's not it. I had a perfect childhood. Everything was, what is she talking about? Mm -hmm. And I left and I said, what if she's right, man? I just started having questions. I've often known that I had less of an emotional growth than almost any of my friends that I've ever known. Like I always, I've read some of the books that my friends have written and I said, wow, I didn't have those feelings when I was younger. Wow, I really missed out. You know, I was stunted. I was, it wasn't the same. So I called her up and we met. Mm -hmm. I said, Judy, I don't know, maybe you're right. And she said, Larry, I'm gonna let you know something. Once you take your finger out of this dike, there's no putting it back in. And sayings last the test of time because they're real. Ignorance is bliss. You might want to remain ignorant. Yeah. And it's a decision that you're going to have to make. That's a really scary decision too, isn't it? Right, right. And I can tell you that if you want to travel this road, it isn't going to be easy. And, but she said one thing at this session. It didn't turn out to be the reality of my life by the end. But she said that one of the things that amazes me is that my brother walks upright. Mm -hmm. She said that in front of my parents and her doctor. Mm. She said, uh, you know, you took such beatings. I can't imagine that how you, you know, I couldn't stay around to watch it. I had to leave the house and move in with friends. Yeah. And, And I thought that was normal. So, yeah. So these are all just repressed things from many long, long time ago. huh? Right. And yet my father and I became absolute best friends. And you know what? There's such a dichotomy there. Uh, And what I mean by that is I told you that he only worked like a half hour a day. I was an athlete. I played little league. I played soccer. I played, you know, wrestling and baseball. He never missed an event 
ever, including college wrestling, where they would drive six, seven, eight hours. You never, they never missed. And yet, you know, I had a, I suppose I had a tough, you know, a tough childhood. Finally, after all was said and done, I took him to the Bahamas, just he and I. I rented a hut way out in the middle of nowhere where you buy your food before you get there and you cook it out on a barbecue. Mm -hmm. And um, I confronted him. You know, why did, why do you think he did this to me? Why did you beat me? You know, I got all A's. I was on the top. I was on the honor roll. I was captain of all the sports. What, what was it? What do you think? And as I look back and as a father uh, and, you know, listen to some of the things Jason says, uh, I, I want to be defensive, but I'm not, you know, I want to have my, my father didn't have, didn't had not even one second or ounce of defensiveness. I don't know. He started to cry and he said, I don't know. I just don't know. I have no idea why, but I'm sorry. Yeah. And we became best friends. We became best friends, best friends. I had a similar situation with my own father in that same way. But by the time I, was able to really get to him to ask that question. Why did you treat us that way? He said he couldn't remember. <laughs> he couldn't remember. And, and he did. He, he ended up ha having dementia. And, and so the, the, the time to have been able to get any satisfactory feedback to that kind of came and went without a whole lot of reconciliation. But we found a way to be close uh, despite that. But it sounds like there was a lot of healing that went on there for you and your dad, huh? Well, there was. Plus, my father, on, on the plus side, he never lifted a hand to a woman ever in his life, you know? So I was, I bore the brunt. So in essence, I kept everybody else safe. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough thing for a kid to go through, but God bless you for being able to finally deal with it. I mean, most people go to their graves without being able to deal with those kind yeah. of things. Thanks to your sister. Absolutely. And I guess she knew what she was doing when she had that, when she set that thing up, didn't she? Well, that was part of what she had to do to get her degree, bring her family in. My father had the greatest sense of humor of any human being on the planet. So my sister and I, yeah. so uh -huh. yesterday I wrote a tremendous tribute to my dad on Facebook because it was his birthday. Uh huh. My niece, my sister's daughter, she's 50 years old, she's still not mm -hmm. a sweeter person on the planet. And we're really, really close. And she read it and she said, Uncle Larry, man, thanks to Sid, we all have this sense of humor. She said, I, I just remember so many funny things about him. And, you know, we used to call him citizens. Yeah. We used to call him citizens. I mean, he he, he was just, a, he was incredible. He used to tell my sister, you get A's in school, but you flunk street. Yeah. That's a tough thing to reconcile, though, later on in life is is the parent that you loved as a child for the very selective things that they did, uh, completely disregarding the other really terrible things. Because I, I, when I think back on my dad, I know that there was a lot of terrible things, not a whole lot of really good things, but the good things are are still talked about. People still talk about it to this day. Do you remember when he did this and he did that? So I get what you're talking about. Absolutely. Well, I, you remember Tracy? She wrote right. a book and uh. she asked me to write about my father's death. Mm -hmm. So I did. And when I read the book, I called her up crying and said, you captured every word. I can't believe how great of a writer you are. It's exactly the way I feel. And she said, idiot, it's exactly what you wrote. I didn't change a word. And one of the wow. things that I said was... And I remember, like, I was listening to Nixon's eulogy, and I said, 
I said, who the right. heck are they burying? And they're not burying Nixon. Man, Jesus. <laughs> so, so I said, uh-huh. death kind of like washes away all the, all the bad parts. And you tend to just remember the good. And I said, that's okay with me. That was the relationship that, that you were finally able to have with him towards the end of his life. Right. And, and so you've stayed engaged in AA. What from that experience do you bring to the program and to, to the men that you sponsor and work with these days? Well, I think Lily, Tom, my sister said Lily Tomlin said it best. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. And what I bring to the table is the fact that one of the universal truths in psychiatry is that all childhood is a nightmare and that you can't dwell in there. You have to live in today in gratitude, acceptance and gratitude. I'm lucky in the fact that I know all my initial reactions are wrong. (laughs) So I can stop. My sister used to say, stop, stop and say hello to Sid because you're acting like Sid. So just go, hi, Sid. Uh, good to see you again, but I got to move on. You know? And those are the way I deal with it. Now, I can tell you how Victor Frankl said the only control we ever have is, is of our perception and our actions. That's the only thing we can control. It's the sole thing left in our control in life. My sister and I would go to Florida and Fort Lauderdale for two weeks every year, just the two, even if we were married, which we were, we would go just the two uh-huh. of us to visit my parents. And yeah. they lived in a retirement community in Fort Lauderdale. Inevitably, you'd hear um, alarms, all the, you know, sirens, ambulances. And my mother would always say, oh, no, Sid, somebody else is in trouble. Just like that. And my sister said, no, Mom, somebody's getting help. And from that one sentence, Howard, yeah. You cannot believe the change in perception. From that time on, my mother's whole attitude changed. She didn't say, Sid, somebody's, in- Sid, somebody's getting help every time. So it just shows you that even words, that the proper words said at the right time to somebody who's open can change your whole perception of everything. What a beautiful sentiment that is, you know, and, and a realization that just a few simple words can make all the difference. And it can change your perception. That's the only thing we have control of. Well, I see you bringing this wisdom and experience that you've gained over the years, and you've had a, a really colorful, colorful life. But seeing you bring that on into the meetings that you and I attend together over the years, and uh, I always admire your willingness to sit right in the front row and stay completely engaged in the meeting and I've always enjoyed the time that you and I have spent together. Me too. I mean, you know, my sponsor always said, be early, stay late, and sit up front. What would you say if you had an elevator ride and you were in there with somebody who needed this? What would you, what would you say to them? So when you ask me about newcomers, I think that the most important thing is to surrender, to totally surrender. Do you fully embrace the fact that you're an alcoholic? And a drug addict. Do you do you own it with every fiber of your body? Mm, that's a good way to put it. Because if you don't, you're never going to get this program. You know. And I, I want to ask you something on this. Yeah. I have a feeling, and I, I could be wrong, but there's certain guys that I know that have twenty. One guy celebrated thirty-nine years today in the gathering, 
yesterday mm-hmm. a guy mm-hmm. celebrated 31 mm-hmm. and i think it comes to a point sometimes where your ego kicks in where you know you got 30 years if i drink i got to start with zero so so <laughs> right. it's just i'm staying sober just for my egotistical reasons <laughs> i mean how am i going to go back to the meeting that i've been going for 35 years and tell somebody i drank yesterday <laughs> So I think you put your finger right on it, Larry. Yeah, I mean, some people I think stay sober for ego, ego reasons. I can't go. What I've always said is that AA and staying sober is, you know, besides just staying alive, it's the thing I've done the longest and the most successfully in my entire life. If I go out and drink, not only will I have ruined my sobriety, but I will have thrown away something that I've worked so hard to have, right? Absolutely. That's an ego thing, too. I get it. I get it. Absolutely. But that's why when people say, well, you know, I knew if I went out and drank, I could come back. I say, no, if I go out and drink, I probably won't come back because that sense of loss and shame and everything else that goes with it would be too intense for me to want to come back. Absolutely. So I don't want to entertain the idea that I can come back because if I do, that's a little crevice, a little crack, a little a little spot that my uh, disease of alcoholism can exploit to its advantage and not mine. So I just stay away from that. I say, show me the middle of the herd. That's where I'm going to hang out. I know you're a middle of the herd kind of guy too. And the fact that you were willing to to do this today means a lot to me. It means a lot that you would ask. Well, you were one of the people I thought of whenever it was I was kind of cogitating how to do this. And what's really cool about it is that all of the stories have been really rich and meaningful. And, and I found the time that you and I have spent today to be just just awesome. And I want to thank you so much for doing this, Larry. You're the best. I love you. I love you too. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Larry E., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And be sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Listen to all of the interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.